History Lecture 69. This is the second part, the list of the Amoraim, at least as our, uh, seen as the primary Amoraim. And you can see there's a, you know, there's a gray area between the Tanaim and the Amoraim. The spearhead, of course, the turning point is Rabir Anossi, who figures prominently at the very top, uh, and then branches off into his great students. And here it's much more distinct. I'll tell you one, a couple things just to point out from this. Can you see it, Akiva? Just take a look, right? So you see, just even like blur your eyes for a second and hold it at a distance, and you can see on the right side is Eretz Yisrael, the Gedolim of Eretz Yisrael. Note, there are certainly prominent figures, Rabbi Yochanan, Rish Lakish, uh, Rabbi Lazar ben Das, Rabbi Abahu, and then suddenly it, it, it tapers off, which is a fair reflection of history, because that's what happens in Eretz Yisrael. It will cease being a center of Torah, as we've been saying, and then you know, turn your eyes to the left on the page, and you can see Bovel remains throughout this period of the Amorim a thriving center with lots of, uh, lots of figures overlapping and uh, several generations going all the way to the end. So even for that alone, this, this chart is invaluable, but of course, all the details on the chart are worth studying and getting familiar with. Um, not all these names, certainly, but several of these names we're going to get familiar with and comfortable with and tell their stories and hopefully feel like we know them personally. Uh, so good, good tool to have. So these are just straightforward maps of Bovell as we find it. And I alert you that you can tell it's delineated by these two great rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And um, notice some of the key names along, and they're all along the rivers. And the you notice that the Gemara speaks in terms of water and, and rivers centrally. That was the culture. Those were, among other things, those were their main highways. That's how they got around. You got you got in a boat and you 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 sailed or you you took a raft downstream, and that's how you traveled. Let's say from the north in Nahardo down to the south along the, around around um, uh, down the Euphrates, the, the Nahapras, um, to the Sura. And you can see Sura down there. It's, it's figured prominently as Rav's home. And, um, and all along, you see Matamaxia, Madronia. These are all very well famous, famous names that come up a lot in the Gemara. And there was one of the reasons, for example, that um, one of the, the, the add-on, the tack-on sixth thing a father has to teach his son is to swim. That's how... Uh, that's how much of a water culture it was. Um, other names to point out, notice Pumadisa, north of Naharda. Very good. You know, we're going to be hanging out here in Bubble for the next little while. Bubble's going to be the center of Jewish life for the next 800 years or so. Yesterday we uh, talked about Rav. You know, a little bit of his Torah, a little bit, little bit of his personality. Rav teaches us, well, to continue to continue the, the story about him, he teaches us that 40 days before Yitzirah Sivlad, before the fetus is created, Baskel comes down and declares it's Shidduch. That's a famous idea introducing the notion of, in Yiddish, what's called a Beshert, that apparently everybody has their designated uh, person. I've commented in the marriage class that we did together that um, this idea in modern hands can be dangerous because people have a misconception that some perfect person is out there waiting and it makes them sometimes overly selective in the Shidduch process and some people never get married because they can't imagine that this person, whoever's standing in front of them, could possibly be all the things that their Beshert was meant to be. Um, I suggested a much more modest, minimalist definition of Beshert is the person you wind up marrying with all of her warts and idiosyncrasies and, 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 and problems that Akadosh Baruch Hu has in mind that that person will bring out the best in you with all of her particular human traits. Um, in any case, all of that apparently is pre, pre-selected before marriage. 
Um, Rav is the author, is, 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 teaches us that it's also for a man to marry before he sees his bride. Shene'emar, the Pasuk that we learned this from, I mentioned this, I think, also in the marriage Chaburah. The Pasuk says, you gotta love your you gotta love your friend like you love yourself, and your ultimate Raya, your ultimate companion in life is your wife. A man particularly for a woman, the Gemara there discusses um, there has to be something physical. The man has to be attracted to his wife. He cannot be repulsed by his wife, and if he should marry her sight unseen, uh, he may reject her. Um, the converse is suggested and then rejected in the Gemara that maybe a woman shouldn't see a man, shouldn't marry a man's sight unseen, uh, but women are made of a different uh, fiber than men, and so that's, that does, it doesn't go both ways. Um, maybe in the modern world there might be something, because women have become a lot more like men, and so, uh, so women tend to want to see their husbands, and there's a whole thing now about the way men look, but that's a new, that's more of a product of modernity. In, not that long ago, Jewish men didn't really care how they looked. That's why, we talked about this, no? We talked about that, that um, looking in a mirror used to be a Torah prohibition for Jewish men. Because it was beged isha, it was it was a way los silbash isha. It was a way that men groomed themselves in a woman like way. Because what do men need to look in the mirror for? Who cares what we look like? Nowadays, men tend to care what they look like. That's a, that's that's new. Yeah. What do you mean it used to be a Torah prohibition? So it was part of the prohibition of a of a man dressing or grooming himself like a woman uh, up there with wearing dresses or plucking out gray hairs. Um, which is still prohibited um, from the, you can't groom yourself like a woman grooms herself and included in that was looking in the mirror so how about why is it that because the culture the culture around men has changed uh, from men it doesn't depend on the secular culture but from men now for whatever cultural reasons uh, have, have, uh, have evolved have, now do care what they look like and so looking in the mirror is not associated with purely women's uh, grooming practices because it's the definition depends. It's the definition of what's included is somewhat subjective and cultural. Depends on what people are doing. Other areas of halacha um, are similar. Are similar in that regard. It depends on what people do. There's another example, totally different halacha, but an example where the people affect. Hello, welcome. Uh, the people affect um, the halacha is let's say where. Um, one is not allowed to have paschalavis, um, milchik bread is prohibited. It's a drabanon prohibition, um, very reasonable because people might very easily assume that bread is parav and come to eat it with fleshiks. You can't have, uh, you can't have um, a meat bread either, which I guess is a less, of a, a less of an issue. Most of us don't cook meat in our breads, but let's say putting some butter in bread might make it taste pretty yummy, but you can't do that. Um, and then there's a question around what's actually bread. If it's not bread, if it's understood that this is like a pastry, for example, and the people wouldn't presume that it's parav, then already you could be lenient. So uh, in this discussion in the, in the, in the post-scheme, and halacha then comes around is, well, what's bread exactly and how are things consumed? A croissant, for example, sometimes the French pastry is consumed like bread. It's eaten as a sandwich, in which case maybe it falls under this uh, general Tukhan of Chazalin and having a milchik, buttery croissant might be actually a, a problem, even if it's kosher technically. On the other hand, if it's eaten as a snack, and therefore people might check, oh, is this 
Fleshik or Milchik, then it wouldn't fall under the prohibition. It, it, illustration of a similar principle. There was a scandal in a kosher bakery in a major Jewish metropolitan center, this is many years ago, but I remember hearing the story, where um, there was the bakery that was the most delicious bakery. And everybody, they, you know, they had the most delicious challah. Everybody flocked there on Arab Shabbos to get make sure that they, you know, because they ran out of challah by certain times. So you wanted to make sure you got in line to get to line up for the challah, this yummy challah. And then this, what's that? Uh, south of you, and um, the uh, well, what's the difference? What's the difference? It's it's not Hara, but uh, it could be. It could be. It could reflect neg. Well, because the following, how could this happen? There must have been some kind of negligence high up, so it doesn't reflect well in the community. And there is a prohibition of lashon hara against a certain community, even not just like on people, so to with, with with a group of people, group of Jews. So um, in this case, you know, they, they finally somebody checked and did some. I don't know what the the mashkiach kashus was doing all that time, but somebody finally checked what was their secret ingredient in the bread was, was in the challah was butter. But it's exactly the reason for the prohibition, right? To avoid, so they were eating with their, you know, their, whatever they were eating, their fleshic meals on Shabbos, they were eating buttered challah without realizing it. Rav, one of his great accomplishments was to set certain tefillahs that we say till today. He uh, composed, for example, that we say on Yom Kippur, Ata Yodea Raze Olam, which is part of the vidui, that we say, the, the confession we say on Yom Kippur. He, um, he gives, in, on Rosh Hashanah, he establishes which psukim and which brachos we say for the different sections of Musaf, Malchios, and um, Zichronos and Shofaros that we say. It's a central part of the davening that was all uh, made up by Rav. I mean, obviously with, from a tradition, but, uh, but he's, he's the author of these. Um, we say it's Fila on Shabbos before Rosh Chodesh. That comes from Rav and several others as well. Rav was very famous for having ten righteous qualities that are brought down in one of the great Musar Svarim, the Shari Tshuva. Um, and listen to these ten qualities. Um, I, you know, you hear sometimes about good midos, and sometimes you're overwhelmed by the extreme nature of the good midos. And I don't know about you, sometimes I hear good Musar, but I think, wow, that's just light years away from where I'm holding. I don't know if I'll ever be on that level. But listen to these. I mean, some of these may, may fit that, but some of these, what strikes me about them is some of them are very attainable. This is, this is how the Shari Tshuva uh, describes Rav's ten points of greatness. One, Rav never looked past his own Dalad Amos. Why is that a good thing? What does it even mean? Dalad Amos is four cubits. It's pretty, in other words, a pretty sh- a short circumference. He wasn't, uh, the opposite quality is like this. You know people who are constantly nosy, always looking around, always checking things out. What's going on? What do you have? What kind of car are you driving over there? Kind of thing, kind of attitude. Right, Rav wasn't so preoccupied with what's going on with the other guy on that level. He was about chesed on that level. If he needed things, he was he was giving and, and so on. But nosy, you know, he 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 worried about what was going on in his immediate vicinity. He wasn't so he was, and, right. That was one of the qualities. Um, Rav number two, he never walked gilui rosh. He never walked with his head uncovered. Why is that remarkable? You think? Well, yeah, that's like us too, no? Remember, in the times of the Gemara, it was not the widespread practice to wear kippah or yarmulke. They didn't, they, they didn't necessarily do it, even though it was recognized as a great sign of Yerush Shemayim. Rav embodied that, but it was not widely practiced. Number th- yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Number three, um, he always ate three meals on Shabbos. And Rabbi Yonah there, describing this, I, I, didn't this just come up recently in Gemara Shir? 
You should have a third meal and you should wash on Shtelech and Mishnah. We didn't talk about that. I talked about this with somebody else, I guess. I, this, was, this just came up recently uh, in the following way. I was spending Shabbos in a very from home on the road. I was on a lecture tour. And um, they had their third meal and they were not going to wash. And I said, if it's okay, would it, do you happen to have any matzah in the house? Do you mind if I wash? I said, no problem. So they brought two matzahs and I washed and had a third meal. And then I learned, I would have to be learning Shari Tshuva then. And I took out this exact section of Shari Tshuva. Kodesh Baruch always plans these things in our lives. So I, I, I learned the halacha was that if you happen to be in a place where they're not careful to serve Shtelech Mishnah, you should strive to get your Shtelech Mishnah, two, two pieces of bread or matzah or whatever. And I thought, ugh. Wow, okay. So anyway, uh, I guess that was right. I didn't expect that. Anyway, Rav was always careful to do that too. Um, number four, uh, this is my favorite. Uh, what, what's brought down? Rav had kavana in davening. No fanfare, no exaggeration. Just he had kavana in davening. We could do that. Sometimes, don't you realize that sometimes the difference between good davening and, and not good davening is just turn the on switch. Just daven to Hashem. Ask him for stuff. Pay attention to the words. Look at the translation. Daven when you're davening. I know that may sound revelatory, no, groundbreaking that's, even. That's like... I mean, you realize that most people in daven don't in davening don't daven. They stand there going through the motions. They do their thing, but they're not really davening. What is kavanah? What are we doing in davening? I'm, I'm davening to Kodesh Baruch Hu. I'm a walking package of tefillahs. I'm always davening. I may not be aware of it, but that's what we are in our lives. We're always walking around. We're always davening. I've always got I, things I want, I need. I'm struggling. Open your mouth and articulate them. Find them in the context of tefillah. Everything is contained in our Shmonis Rei. You may not realize it, but it's all in there. There's a space for it. And if it's not there, add it. Add it in Shmat Cholino. Add it, add it in the Bakashas that we say at the very end. With or without a Kodesh Baruch's name. Put it in there. And Rob, Rob did that. It's just right there. Straight out in front of you. Just, just grab it and do it. So he dabbed with Kavon number five. Um, during tefillah, he never looked to the sides. You know, this doesn't resonate with anybody. I love this stuff. I love these things. It's great. Because you see guys sitting there. People are bored. They're not having Kavon. What's going on with him? What's going on over there? Right? Okay. Number six, he always took a side route in entering the base medrash. He was careful not to um, impose on people knowing that he was robbed, he was got a Lador, and everybody would stand up, and far be it for him to make other people, to put other people out, to make them go out of their way. Uh, another way of saying it is, he never liked taking executive privilege. Okay, so maybe he was got a Lador, but he didn't like to play that role. Not something that he, he, was, he was a fan of. Number seven, he um, never ate at a Sudas Rashus. In other words, if people were just having a fancy meal and they said, you want to come, he didn't, he didn't partake. He wasn't interested in handouts or freebies. Um, number eight, he, anyone who belittled, belittled him, who put him down, he was the first to go over and reconcile with them. He would say, I'm so sorry, I must have done something to you, you must be upset with me. Number nine, uh, he was known, he had a very sweet voice. And um, when he was asked, he never refused to daven on behalf of the Jewish people. And number 10, he was constantly in tzitzit and constantly in tefillin. You never found him without tzitzit and tefillin. He was wrapped in the mitzvahs. Something very um, attainable about all of these, very pure and holy. Now, picture this. Picture, look at the maps for a second. You have, you have Nahardah, that's Shmuel's place in the north. South of there you have Surah. So you think this great confrontation, you got Shmuel here, Rav there, and they probably formed two different households. But it wasn't like that. We saw Beishel and Beishamai were, were not uncommonly at odds with one another. Surah and Nahardah were beautifully united. They shared students who traveled back and forth. 
often the Gemara itself, and we've read Gemaras, we, in Makos already, we've read Gemaras about Rav and Shmuel. It says, Rav and Shmuel, the Amar Travayu. Both of them teach the following principle. That's how united they were. They would sometimes co-author a halacha. Now, they had disagreements. There are many of them in the Babli and the Yushalmi. But we also find something really extraordinary. Sometimes they would pass, they would have a disagreement and then paskin like the other one. So Rav, after the disagreement, stated his views and said, yeah, and the halacha follows Shmuel, and vice versa. It's the ultimate humility. Meaning, in other words, this is my view, but my uh, colleague Shmuel holds otherwise, and the halacha follows him. We have to defer to his view on the subject. You first. Right. But what it was, was they, all, they could often defend the other one's view, meaning they thought deeply enough about the issue that they could even see they could defend one another in their views to be attacked. You'd have to say this kind of idea of elu ve'elu elokim chaim, when if, you're right, if you really think the other view is off the wall, no basis, that's one thing. Here, it must be in these cases, it's not that they're off the wall. I just say, you know, here's a view and here's a view. They're both founded, they both had a pasuk or a svara, something that, that it's based on. I happen to favor this view, but who am I? Your view, I'm sure, is inferior, excuse me, superior to mine. That's, I think that's where it's coming from. And again, it's reflecting this, this unusual situation of, of unity. Generally, we paskin, the halacha follows rav in what's called iser veheter, Kinds of what's, what, are, what are halachas dealing with iser veheter? Do you know that expression? Um, Yuridea is iser veheter, so kashrus. Is it, is it, is it aser or is it mutter? Is it permitted or forbidden? So kashrus, nida, avelus, a lot of, lot of, um, of Yuridea issues. Usually the, the halacha follows rav. Uh, in dinim, like with monetary uh, issues, it follows Shmuel. Um, sometimes their respective teachings became confused. They were so close, and very often in the Gemara you find Rav v'Shmuel Chadamar. They had a machlokis. We're not sure who held what. So one of them held like this, and the other one held like that. That was the nature of their relationship. So that was Rav. A little bit about Shmuel. Shmuel was a Kohen. And um, he was called Shmuel Yarchinai because he set a lot of the present calendar that we have, that we use, the Luach er, um, Am Yisrael that we use till today, um, was set by him, and Yereach is Moon. So Yarchinai, he was the calendar man. He reestablished this ancient yeshiva in Nahardah. He lived around between the years, just to give you a sense of where we're holding in history, from 165 to 257. Uh, give or take, those are, those are approximate. This time in history, we don't know these things absolutely. Um, the, here's how he's described in the Gemara Baba Metziah. He was called a master in all areas of wisdom. He was an astronomer, but not your ordinary uh, stargazer. Uh, here's what he, was, he said, the paths of heaven are as clear to me as the paths around Nahardea. Uh, that's, that's how well I know these constellations, and of course, all for halachic purposes. Uh, we learn things from them, including especially in terms of the calendar, um, he was also a doctor, very renowned. He described he knew all areas of medicine except for three. I like descriptions like that because it's so precise. Like if you knew, if, you know, if you say he knew all areas of medicine, I would have doubts. But if he knew everything except for three, then I really believe that he knew everything. His father is referred to as um, Avua de Shmuel, Avua de Shmuel, the father of Shmuel. Sometimes that happens that your son is so great that that becomes your your um, your own name. But he's originally known as Abba Bar Abba. That was his name in the Gemara. And he was a, sel- a silk... His, he, his, Shmuel's father is otherwise known as Abba Bar Abba. Father, son of father. Okay, uh, He was a silk merchant. 
And once, Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra had ordered silk for him, and he never came to claim it. And the father, being an honest businessman, because that's what Jews are supposed to be, supposed to be honest in all of our dealings, he set aside the silk. And um, years passed, and Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra never came. Finally, Rabbi Yehuda approached him on some unrelated business, and, um, and Abba Bar Abba said, here's your silk, I set it aside for you. And Rabbi Yudah Vesera was so amazed at him, he says, you know, I, I, I never even made a, a, a transaction on this. I never bought these things, and you set them aside for me. He said, um, and, and, and Abba Bar Abba's response is, yeah, yeah, but if you said it, I trust you more than any money that you'd give me. So Rabbi Yudah left him, he blessed him. He said, you should have a son who's great like that faithful prophet uh, of Hashem, who is that great prophet of Hashem that was second to Moshe Rabbeinu, Shmuel Hanavi. Indeed, Abba Bar Abba has a son and he names him Shmuel. So Shmuel is born, he's described as being so sharp, such, a, such an amazing mind, that he remembered his own midwife. Once, um, Shmuel, if you notice, we're kind of, it's kind of strange at this time in history to be on a first name basis, though I feel a little odd referring to this giant of Torah as Shmuel, and Rab was bothered by that too, and Rab approached him and he said, how come you don't have smicha? How come you, we should call you Rab Shmuel? No, something. And Shmuel said, no. He said, I've seen in the Sifra a collection of a tradition that goes back to Adam Arishon uh, that Shmuel might be a Chacham, but he won't be called a Rav. So you never got Smicha. We have, we have figures like that. Today, um, in the modern time, you know, by the way, we don't really have Smicha nowadays anyway, the official Smicha. But you know that there are great figures who never got Smicha, you know, like in the modern days? So the, the, the story that's told is the Chafetz Chaim was actually at a border crossing and the Polish authorities didn't believe that he was the Chafetz Chaim, and they gave him a hard time. And he said, no, it really is me. And they, they thought he was lying, and they were going to imprison him for, uh, for, 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 you know, for falsehood. And, and they, um, he had to wire the other guy on the door, Reb Chaim Olszewski. And Reb Chaim Olszewski wired him back a smicha. A quickie, a quickie smicha. No, no, he's really the Chafetz Chaim, and he's a rabbi. And they saw the certificate. Um, Reb Aaron Cutler, the founder of the largest yeshiva in the world, Lakewood, uh, never had smicha. Not like that. Wait. Well, smicha. They were. They were. Who, who? Rav Aaron Cutler. But he was known as he was a rab, but he didn't ask me. Right. Well, Smicha's just, nowadays, again, Smicha's just a piece of paper, and I don't mean to minimize it. Sometimes it's useful. You know, if some of you are going to go on to the Rabbanos, you might be a congregational rabbi. So the people like to see, especially the less knowledgeable Jews out there, you know, what are you? What certifies you? Do you have a piece of paper? Yeah, it's on the wall, ma'am. See, I'm, I'm official. I'm certified. So then people feel good about it, but there's, no, we don't have Smicha. We're going we're gonna to see shortly enough the Romans are about to cancel it. At this day, around this time in history, uh, the persecutions are even though, even though there's a great t- time in Tyra, the persecutions are, are increasing um, during during the. I mean, it's hard to imagine that they produce this incredible work called the Talmud, right? Under 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 the inc- incredible duress, uh, amazing hardship that these that these gedolim endured uh, despite their greatness, or maybe that's what made them great. Uh, Shmuel is responsible for a lot of very famous halachas that you may know and not realize they're from him. He teaches in Avodah Zarah, Yain Mavushal, Einbo Meshum Yain Nesech. You know this one, because when non-from Jews or non-Jews touch your wine, uh, you can't drink it, or move your wine around, you can't drink it. Therefore, people look from Yain Mavushal, major leniency, right? Pasteurized wine, which is itself a machlokis today, but let's say we can rely on the lenient position that if you have that, then you can drink that wine. Uh, Shmuel teaches us, Hamotze Michavero Alav Haraya. You know what that, you ever heard that one before? Well, if you were here last year, we learned Baba Metziah last year. It's a major principle in money. Somebody who wants to extract money, you got an argument about money, 
right? I say, Aryeh owes me money, and, and he says, no, I don't owe you any money. The principle is, everything else being equal, we would say, the one who wants to extract the money from his friend, it's my job, since I don't have the money, to prove it. I got to bring the proof. I got to bring witnesses or a star or something like that. The fact that you're holding on to the money itself is like a chazaka. It means that you effectively, that's your proof that you're holding on to it. I've got the burden of proof to, to deal with. That's Shmuel's principle. What? He teaches the principle of dina de machusadina, that we follow the law of the land, which is not always easily understood. What, to what does that apply exactly? But the general principle we know, uh, if you're living in a secular culture, we all are. Wherever you are in the world today, we're living in a secular in a secular society. Um, Eretz Yisrael is no different, unfortunately. Um, so we have to follow some with some with some limitations the law of the land. Um, he teaches that it's forbidden to um, deceive people. Asur gnevas das das even non Jews. Um, Jewish businesses don't always realize ah it's, it's a goy it's okay you can you can cheat him you can swindle him no you can't. Gnevas uh, das is a, is, a, is a serious prohibition you can't. Um, Examples of this is you can't put out, say you're an apple merchant, you couldn't put all the shiny red apples on top if by doing so your intention is to kind of hide the moldy um, uh, uh, pockmarked ones underneath, um, hoping that people will, without looking, kind of throw all the apples in their bag. That's deception. To put out, you have to display your wares in a way that you, the, the customer knows exactly what they're getting. Okay, if that's your intent. Fair enough. It depends what your intention is. I agree. It, um, you can't... I once saw that somebody was selling fresh, uh, freshly squeezed juice, right? And then somebody looked funny about it. So I, without trying to bring attention to myself, I kind of walked behind the counter. You have to be careful around... Unfortunately, you know, uh, in, in this country too, you find this kind of thing. I saw the guy was putting Petel... You know, the sugar water stuff that they put in, it, it, it was mostly, it was like five, half of it was petal, and then he squeezed it, because it's something funny, he squeezed one orange and produced this big, tall glass of, of freshly squeezed orange juice, and that, that doesn't make sense. And indeed, it didn't make sense. Anyway, that's Gnevis Das, it's an Easter. It's, Shmuel has this solar calendar system that, that corresponds, there are two, do you know anybody study about the calendar? It's pretty interesting stuff, it affects our lives. Uh, it's, it coincides with the Julianic calendar system, Julius Caesar's, in which every year is 365 days, 5 hours, 40, 48 minutes, six, 46 seconds. Um, that'll be on the test. The, um, that's one view, and later it's amended to the authoritative view that we follow, of Adabar Ava, uh, which is like similar to the Gregorian calendar, not exact, which is like our calendar mostly, 365 days a year, 5 hours, 55 minutes, 25 seconds. And it goes in 19-year cycles. It's useful to know. Um, in which we have leap years. Do you know what the leap years are? Every 3, 6, 8, 11, 14, 17, and 19 years are leap years. Like in that cycle, that's how it goes. So there's a predictability, and it's, it is mind-bogglingly impressive. How do they know that? Secular, non-Jewish people study the Jewish calendar and it's unerring for thousands of years' ability to get it right and to make sure that Pesach always comes out in the springtime, which is one of the criteria for, for, for our calendar. It's a, it's a solar lunar calendar. We've got to get by the sun and the moon. And it's uncanny. Of course, by us, we're not amazed by it and the way that they are because we understand it comes from a Baruch. He set the calendar and Shmuel was his mouthpiece. Now Shmuel was much younger than Rav, and of course, and, and indeed outlived outlived Rav. He would be the next Gedolador. It's around the time that there's increased persecution in Bavel. Uh, the, the, the the Babylonians would kidnap Jews. 
and there's a terrible story. Shmuel's daughter was kidnapped. Uh, she, she was raped, and her and and she gave birth. And um, her son, the captor, eventually converted. But she had a son who became a sage, and one of the Amoraim, his, and he's referred to in the Gemara as Ra Ravmari Bas Bas Shmuel. He doesn't go, by, usually he goes by the father's name, but the father was not so prestigious, being a convert and being somebody who raped his mother, so he's referred to as the, excuse me, Bar, Bar Bas Shmuel. He's the son of the daughter of Shmuel, was his, was his greatest, um, uh, yeah, claim to fame, thank you. He was great too, that's why he's Ravmari. But uh, that's his, that's his, his yeah. Um, in the same circle with Rav and Shmuel, I mentioned there's another great figure, actually senior to Shmuel in knowledge. He was actually a teacher of Shmuel. His name is Levi. The full name is Levi Ben Sisi. He was also a student of Yehuda Nasi. Is he, he's on the he's on this uh, chart. You see Levi up there with Rav and Shmuel. Yeah, yeah. He's not as prominently displayed, but he is. Um, no, no. I know, I know. He should be here. I'm also not seeing him. That would be an omission if it's not here. But I, I, for some reason, I recall it being here. Okay, maybe I, maybe I don't get it. Maybe he's senior. Maybe he's up by the time of the. You see Abu Shmuel there. He comes up in the Gemara. Okay, I don't see I don't see Levi either. Anyway, he he is big, um, and I'll tell you a story about him. It's from the Gemara in Yuvamos. Um The story goes like this with Levi. He, oh, good. It's in the it's in the Tanaim chart because he's older. That makes sense. He was older than the others, and he's definitely in the, cir- in the, in the inner circle with Rabbi um, Hanasi. So once the uh, a community by the name of Simonius um, needs a rav, they also had local rab- rabbis, and they, they sent to Rabbi Hanasi, the Galador, would you send us a rav? And he sent them Levi. He was very distinguished, and the community was very excited, and they greeted him with great fanfare and uh, celebration. The great rav is coming to town. And the story goes, when he was newly installed as the rabbi of the community, they brought him a shaila. That's what you do with rabbis, no? You ask him a question. And he didn't know the answer to the question. Okay, what happens? So then they have a pasuk they can't figure out. And they ask him about the pasuk, and he's, he's completely dumbfounded. He has no idea how to explain the pasuk. And this keeps happening. And they said, we sent for a rabbi, not for a fool, and they, they um, send him back. And he can't explain anything. And when Rebbe hears of this, he says, you don't understand, Levi is my equal in learning. He said in his humility, I can't understand why you're sending him back. So when Levi came back, Rebbe asked him, and he asked him the questions. He said, what, what, do you know, because he, he heard from the people what the questions were. So he said, what was the, what's the halacha? And Levi, without blinking, answered the halacha perfectly. He said, well, what does this pasuk mean? And again, didn't flinch, he explained the pasuk. And he got everything perfectly. So, so Rebbe asked Levi, he said, well, what, what happened? Um, and, and he explains, Levi explains, he says, when they made me this big kavod, it made me forget all of my Torah. But when I come back to you, I'm just another guy in Rebbe's uh, base medrash. And then I remembered everything. Kavod makes a person forget. You get too big on your britches. Little humility is usually good for uh, a person's uh, neshama. Good for, good for one's ability to learn. By the way, that's true. I remember when I first started teaching 20 years ago in Sharnavasar Tzion, one of my colleagues there who's still there, he's still already there, I just saw him recently, um, he said, he always noticed this at the beginning of the year, there were certain guys who expressed a certain arrogance in whatever, their attitude and so on, and he, he always felt that those were the toughest students. 
but they just knew it all. They've been, oh yeah, I went to Yeshiva High School, Rabbi. I know everything you're going to teach me. And, and you know, if, there, if there's not that sense of humility, there's not much that they're going to accomplish in the course of the year. And I remember that 20 years ago, because 20 years into it, and uh, being in these yeshivas, I, I, he's right. It's true. People who have certain humility are open. Are open vessels can 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 accomplish things in life. Uh, when you know it all, there's nothing new to learn. Levi learned Tehillim. He learned Sefer Tehillim. Uh, the Gemara also says that Rabbi Shimon ben Rebbe, the son, one of the sons of, of Rebbe Yudanasi, learned Mishlei. Mishlei being Proverbs. Um, the Gemara teaches this because these were not, and still aren't, considered books that you learn if you have a big intellect. Tehillim, people refer to, you know, Tehillim, that's for the women to go learn. No, women go say Tehillim. To sit and learn and steig in Tehillim, which of course is one of the foundations of our Amuna. It expresses some of the deepest ideas of faith imaginable. Levi actually steigt and learned in it. And he didn't care what people thought about him. He, wasn't, he was not a Balgaiva per se. Uh, Levi also had something bad, tragic happen to him. Um, there was a certain handstand that only rare people, we talked about it here, is called Kidov. Maran Sukkah brings it down and elsewhere. Um, Rabbi, what, the first Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel knew how to do it, and he did it when? Weddings and Sukkah. Simcha Shoev. And it was a great entertainment for everybody. It was, it was uh, the Gemara describes it, I don't have the quite picture in my mind. It was something where you could stand on your thumbs. And, and then you twisted with your knees. And you twisted with your knees. Fantastic and entertaining ability. And the Nasi himself, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, was a master at it and entertained people at the Simcha Shoeva. Well, Levi tried it. And it didn't work out, and he went lame for the rest of his life. And it was actually connected to another story in Tainis where he spoke in an inappropriate way, and uh, he went lame. So, so it doesn't always go, life is not always easy for the, even the Gedolim. A little bit of a check-in, so in terms of this phase in history in Lovell, the ruling power still, after a few hundred years, are the Parthians, who are the, they're not exactly the ethnic descendants of the Persians, but the same area, and, and, and an obviously related name here, Persian, Parthian, right? So the Parthians have been the ruling power for a long time, um, and they're finally defeated by the, what's called the Sassanids. In the Gemara, the Sassanids are referred to as the Chabarim, it's another word for the same thing. Their religion is Zoroastrianism. It's a kind of pagan religion. You've heard of Zoroastrians? Still around today. It is. They love Cyrus. Right, Korish, because they they, they, they they have an affinity with the same area, right? So they're. Uh, well, what it is, it has an element that can be confused with monotheism because they do believe in a creator. But they, what they really are, we've spoken, we've spoken about it recently when we talked about Acher, because um, we talked about his, one of his major mistakes, Elisha ben Abuya, um, when he went to the Maestir Merkava, when, when he saw the image in the Pardes, um, he saw Metatron, the angel, sitting. And he, remember this? And, and, and angels don't sit, so he thought that there was maybe a dark side that was independent of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, which he mistook like Zoroastrian beliefs for Judaism and thinking that, you know, there is a creator of the universe, but there are independent forces, what's called Gnosticism is this idea. Um, the Christian world has this notion, too. One, one encounters this when they talk about the devil, as Shalom, as if the devil has a mind of his own, independent of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. The devil, of course, is based on Hasatan. But Hasatan, in, in, in Torah, in our sources, under, we understand Hasatan as an angel doing the Kaddish Baruch Hu's will. It's subservient to the Kaddish Baruch Hu. The Zoroastrians were not like that. They had, they had this, this important and, and, and problematic twist to it. What's that? The Christian view isn't the same 
it's not exactly, I mean, one finds this in Christianity, even though their theology is really complicated and not always consistent. They also worship lights. This has a big impact. This comes up in the morning. I mean, I don't want to get through this. You're going to be, you're going to hear this idea and it's going to sound familiar. They worshiped light and they decreed that nobody was, was allowed to light during their holidays on what's called Yom Edan, during, during their holidays. Um, but we light. We do it anyway. And even if they decree that we can't, we do it anyway. On Shabbos, on Yantiv, on Hanukkah, we lit. And sometimes, we lit secretly, but we lit. Uh, one of the first times that Jews brought the Hanukkiah inside was under the Zoroastrian regime because it was dangerous to light outside, but we still lit. Um, and on Shabbos, they asked Shaila, they didn't know, they asked Rav, um, can we move, after the candles have gone out, can we take the, let's say, the flame that was outside, if we bring it inside, lest they catch us? And the problem, of course, is, why can't you bring it in after the candles burned out? It's Mokza, right? Candelabras are Mokza after they've been, you're not using it for Shabbos, and Rav is lenient because of Pikuach Nefesh. He said, you lit, you can bring it out, it's a Sakana if you, if you, if you leave it out. Um, the Sasanids, this group, the Chabarin, are bad guys, and they'll persecute Jews all the way from the time of Rav down to the end of the Talmud period of Ravina, and even later, uh, we're going to hear some terrible stories of what they did to us. Um, they actually, they continue until the Muslim, Muslim conquest till about six, the mid-600s. We're going to hear about the Sasanids. Um, I mean, there's not much to comment on. They were crude in their culture. So we could describe them, but I, I prefer to talk about our tzaddikim who have much more of a, an impact long-term in history. Um, that's Bava. Let's move back to Eretz Yisrael. Because if you notice, again, and those of you who came in late, I just I take a look at the chart with the names, and you can see the prominence of Eretz Yisrael and Bavel, and these days is still more or less equal, and that's going to wane in a couple generations in Eretz Yisrael. But at this point... Um, the, the Gedolim have really emerged. We've met them a little bit, but let's, let's focus on them now. They are Rabbi Yochanan ben Nacha, or simply Rabbi Yochanan, um, as we know him, and then his colleague, Reish Lokish, who are uh, some of the most important and colorful of the figures. He's ben Nacha, because his father was a blacksmith. Nacha is a blacksmith. Rabbi Yochanan was the second one. We mentioned his quality yesterday, Rav, who is Tana Ufali, who could take on a, a view of a Tana. He had that kind of stature. They're considered, he's considered the Gadol Hador of the second generation of Amoraim in Eretz Yisrael. His teachers were Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi and Rabbi Hanina. They were the first generation, he's the second generation. A little bit about his life. It's a very inspiring life. We talked about him a little bit. No, we stood in Tiveria, we stood in his home. So um, here's a little bit of Rabbi Yochanan. And let me distinguish too, there's the earlier Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai from the time of the Horban. Don't confuse it. This is the later Rabbi Yochanan. So when his mother was pregnant, it was Yom Kippur, and she develops an, uh, an immense craving for a cooked dish on Yom Kippur. And they come to it, they approach her, and they whisper to her, and she becomes ill. And of course, it's nefesh, and under those circumstances, potentially a person can eat. And a pregnant woman is begedder, she's, she's considered a hola, potentially she basakana. And they whisper to her, you know it's Yom Kippur, because she'd forgotten. And immediately, the fetus lets go and no longer craves the, uh, the meat. That the, the pregnant woman has the craving, but the source is the fetus, and the fetus lets go and no longer craves the, the, the tavshil. And they, they read a pasuk from Yirmiyahu about this unborn baby. They say, from, Even before you emerge from the womb of the mother, uh, you become holy. 
recognizing the holiness of this fetus. He has a parallel personal story to Esther, Hamalka. His father died after conception. His mother died in childbirth. He was therefore obviously an orphan from the earliest, youngest of ages. He teaches in the Gemara Kedushin, Ashrei mi shalo ra'a osam. Happy is the one who never saw his parents. Of course, that's autobiographical. He never saw his parents. Why is that? Why is he a person like that happy? Honoring one's mother and father is an endless obligation that most of us eventually blow. We mess up that area. It's so intense. The only person with a perfect score is somebody of the likes of Rabbi Yochanan. He can never fail and stumble in this mitzvah since he never had the opportunity to keep it. But anybody who has the opportunity, you could be immensely good at honoring your parents. Even so, uh, we've already saw. Remember, remember, we told stories of Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi, Rabbi Yishmael, and Elisha, who, in their extremes of honoring, even so, didn't meet half the requirement. He was born in Sipori. He learned there. He stayed in Sipori. So presumably, somebody brought him up, and he learned under Rebbe Yudanasi in the last 17 years of Rebbe's life. We said already his other Rebbe's were Rabbi Chanina, Rabbi Yanai, Chizkia, the son of Rabbi Chia. He also learned with Rabbi Oshaya in Kesaria. Um, Rabbi Yochanan was handsome. He was legendarily handsome. The Gemara there says he does not make the top list of handsome people in history. Do you remember who's on People magazines? I mean, the Gemara's uh, magazine's uh, top list of handsome people in history. Adam. Not Yosef. Although identical face. Yaakov. Adam, Yaakov, and then two... No, no, they have, no, 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 you'd think, but they're actually, they're both students of Rabbi Yochanan. No, maybe you don't know them, we'll, we'll meet them, Rav Kahana and um, Rabbi Abahu. And then the Gemara asks, hey, what about Rabbi Yochanan himself? They were both students, but he belongs in this list, and maybe some of the other names you mentioned too, but apparently they didn't make it either, they didn't make the cut. Um, so they asked about Rabbi Yochanan, and the answer was, Gemara says, he lacked hadras ponim, didn't have hadras ponim, and Rashi says... A beard. He didn't have a beard. So uh, people bring from their Araya that a beard is the completion of the Jewish face insofar as a person you know, has a beard. That's, that was the standard traditional way of a Jewish man. Um, Maharsha argues with this. He said, no, 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 it was some other quality, but it was not a beard. Um, he actually used his beauty, L'Shem Shemayim. He would sit at the gates of the mikvah, not looking at girls. He explained, no, to me they look like white geese. I don't have a Yitzhahara. I, I've overcome my Yitzhahara. He said, um, he said um, but I would sit here so that they should look at me, um, not with desire, but that the image that they have in their minds should be of me. He knew that he was going to adore. He knew he was good looking, that that should be the image and that should have an influence on the children. And they're really, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting, intriguing Gemara. It's a little odd sounding if you don't think about it, but the Gemara has lots of statements like this. Uh, in one instance, the Gemara tells a story of a man who had a baby with his wife, or so he thought, and the baby was, was um, black in, in skin color, and they were both white, and he thought she was adulterous, and then the Rav found find out when that would happen, she had looked at a black image right before, right before um, um, intimacy. And that that image in her mind had an impact on the fetus. Uh, the Gemara does say elsewhere that the thoughts a person have during, has during that time impacts the nature of the fetus. So you should be a holy Jew, and you should think holy thoughts during that time, which is Sometimes you may not know this. That actually, that experience can bring out the animal in a lot of people. You're aware of that? No, you're not surprised by that? Okay. Uh, okay. Sometimes people get bestial when they, you know, and kind of like full of the Yitzhahara during that time, but the Jews, the Torah teaches and the Talmud teaches and these kinds of stories that that's potentially a very spiritual time. And a person who has lofty thoughts, who has higher thoughts, that can actually have a direct, great impact on the, on the outcome of the child. 
um, during, during that time. So that's what that was his intention. And when they asked him, they said, "What about Ayin Hara? Why is it, are you uh, are you worried about sitting here in such a precarious situation?" He said, "No, I am a spiritual descendant of Yosef, and Yosef was zokah to the bracha Ben Poras Yosef Ben Poras Ale Ayin." You've, you're, you've overcome your eye. You're not going to have the evil eye, and you won't look. You won't look in a lecherous way. Um, that's Rabbi Yochanan. His colleague is Reish Lakish, and Reish Lakish initially comes from a family of, of rabbis, and goes off the derech. He falls into a life not just of crime, but he becomes a thug, becomes the chief ga- gangster, a chief mafios, mafiosa. And this is the story that we alluded to earlier today. Reish Lakish. Um, was crossing the Jordan River. And he suddenly beholds, and he's, he's, he's again, he's, he's a thief, he's the lowlife of the world, but he beholds Rabbi Yochanan. And he sees Rabbi Yochanan, he sees his great beauty, and he sees in the beauty a spiritual uh, greatness reflected. And he's drawn to it, and he goes into the Jordan to go see who this person is. And Rabbi Yochanan sees this man who is clearly this, this great bandit and he's able to see things that not the ordinary, ordinary people don't see, he sees his potential greatness and he says your greatness is greatness that's designated for Torah if you use it for the right thing, if you use it for the wrong things you'll be the chief Don uh, mafioso in the world and if you, lose, if you use it for good things you'll be the chief rabbi in the world Rish Lakish has it, and the whole exchange is worthy of analysis. I'm not going to get into it in great detail, but he says, your beauty is beauty of women. And Rabbi Yochanan says, okay, you're starting for the wrong reasons, but I'll make you a deal. My, my sister is more beautiful than me, and if you return, you make tshuva, you can marry her. So that was the question you asked the other day. And, uh, and Rish Lakish accepts the deal, and then... To me, this is almost one of the most important parts of the story. He immediately, after resolving, he doesn't even become a Balchuvi yet. He hasn't even become technically from. He just makes up his mind that he's going to take steps in that direction. And after making up his mind, he goes back to pick up his coat, and he can't pick up the coat that he used to wear as a bandit. Rashi has this line. Rashi says, why not? Tashash koho. His strength failed him. He had no energy left. He couldn't pick up the coat. And I find this a great piece of uh, human psychology and wisdom that comes up a lot in life. When you use your strengths for good things, you find you don't have energy left for the bad stuff. And conversely, when you're totally engrossed in bad stuff, there's not much room left for spirituality. It's like, a, let's say, an acupuncturist can somehow massage your lower calf and cure your headache. There's a correlation between things that don't seem connected. That Your, your ability to contain your Yitzhahara for let's say matters of intimacy, directly corresponds to your spirituality. And if you contain one, the other will, will, will thrive in the, in the positive and the negative direction. And so Rabbi Yochanan, Reish Lakish indeed becomes a Balchuva and he learns, he becomes a great man. What is the secret? This part of the Gemara, I'm, I'm connecting many stories together, so I'm going to put down this story for the time being. I'll resume it later on, later in the week. But um, the Gemara Shabbos tells us that Reish Lakish Darshan, very famous drasha, in the Pasuk at the beginning of Pasha's Chukas, the Pasuk tells us, Zos HaTayra Adam Kiyamus Ba'ohel. This is the Torah, a man who dies in a tent. Anybody know, anybody learned the beginning of Pasha's Chukas? What's, what's the subject there? The commandments, the paraduma, the red heifer, dealing with Tumas Ohel, when a person dies in a structure, so everybody who goes inside that structure gets Tumas Ohel, and that's clearly what the Pasuk's talking about. But Reish Lakish darshans it. He says, no, Zos this is the Torah, Adam Kiyamus Ba'ohel, a man who dies in a tent, 
He says, it's referring to an Adam who dies in the tents of Torah, the base Medrash. And what does it mean, dies? Ein divrei Torah miskayimin, Reish Lakish teaches, words of Torah don't exist, don't, aren't established. Ela b'misha memis asmo aleha. And let, and except on somebody who kills himself over it. Have you heard this idea before? It's such a fundamental idea of Judaism. That you want to sit and learn, you want somebody to entertain you, that's nice, but Torah won't really go in. When you need to learn Torah, this is why Chazar is so, for, so important, why, as best I can, my style of teaching the Gemara, I mean, several of you are in my share, that's why I mention this, when I give you as little as I can, and I try to hold back, because I want you to figure it out for yourself, and yeah, I mean, the expression is, break your teeth over the sugya, that's how you become great Torah scholars. So you want to be a great Torah. So you got to kill yourself over this Torah and struggle. If you got a problem in the, in, in the Gemara, ideally, you should know from many sleepless nights. And if it means maybe even staying in the base Medrash till late, that, that could be a great schutz. You'll go far in Torah. But if I mean, somebody who just expects to take his Gemara, curl up in bed with some tea and cinnamon and nutmeg and you know enjoy it and kind of like doze off as you're, as you're perusing the cute lines you don't learn Torah that way you gotta, you gotta, gotta work. And, and that was Rish Lakish put his own drasha to the test and he, he lived that life Yushalmi tells us that he would spend all of his days learning Yomam Valayla that was he was the learning machine he was before Rabbi Yochanan he didn't just learn he fasted he davened intensely for, 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 um, for Hashem to give him intelligence, understanding. He reviewed every sugya he learned. He reviewed 40 times. That's what you guys do, right? 40 times? Okay, 101. There you go. Um, he did it connected the 40 days of Masan Torah. He eventually arose and became, the status was called a Talmud Chaver, like a peer with Rabbi Yochanan. And their learning was famous, was legendary, because, and this is Arya, I was, I was describing the process of Chavrusa earlier today. When Chavrusa works well, and it doesn't have to be your intellectual peer or even somebody's compatible, but when you're really learning in symbiosis with another person, what happens is one plus one equals three. You're saying something, he responds, you then counter. The, fact, the whole dialectic, the interplay between your conversation in the learning, over the learning, itself produces a new level of understanding that you would never get by yourself. And the two of you come out with so much more than you had. And that's, that's, they're one of the model chavrusas that we have in all of history. Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, and we'll see at the end, Rabbi Yochanan outlives Reish Lakish and uh, desperately misses his old chavrusa. Because it was through his old chavrusa that his own Torah became activated, was able to reach the highest possible level. During this period, we talked about Bob, we talked about Eretz Yisrael, but they're not separate. And we talked about this yesterday, their interplay between them, even though we know Bavel is subordinate to Eretz Yisrael, and Eretz Yisrael, they're still in the Sanhedrin, they have the, the calendar, they're fixed in the leap years and the, and the new months, right? But there is uh, increasing Torah in Bavel, and there's still a lot of Torah going out of the base Medrash of Rabbi Yochanan, and so there's a back and forth. Um, a comment about Bavel and Eretz Yisrael, there's a statement in the Rambam that's not explicit, but he implies that the communities from this point in history that are in Eretz Yisrael, because even though there's a decline in the Torah of Eretz Yisrael, the people, Jews, will stay in Eretz Yisrael continuously. Bavel, of course, will have a continuous population. Rambam indicates that it may be that today's Sephardi population dates back to the Jews who were in Eretz Yisrael during this period. 
and that presumably by contrast the Ashkenazim descend from the Babylonian centers there's that indication uh, Rav Avad Yosef seems to indicate this as well that the Sephardi community in Eretz Israel has much deeper roots never having left the uh, Nafkamina is that maybe the split occurred all the way back at this phase in history that's a theory I just bring it because I, 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 my, my, my intention is to bring the whole messy big picture of history with all the theories I don't say this is true. What's more commonly understood is that the split takes place much later, around the 10th century. And we'll tell that story. Does the, the, anybody know the story of the four captives? Yeah, yeah. You've heard the four captives? Fine. So we'll tell, we'll tell the story. And that's really where you start to get distinct, uh, pr- uh, pronounced differences between Ashkenazi and Sephardi. But some trace it back at, uh, already at this, at, at, to this point in history. Maybe. Maybe it's true. Um, what, what, even if that's true... Everybody agrees. Sephardi, Ashkenazi, the foundation of Torah will eventually go through Bavel. Meaning everybody embraces the Babylonian Talmud and that will be the center for everybody. The, um, in the, I, I've been focusing on Bavel and Eretz Yisrael because that's really where everything's happening. But that doesn't mean that the Jews are all there. There are Jews at this point throughout what's called the Holy Roman Empire. As far west as Spain. In Spain we know that there were merchants who were Shomer Shabbos for centuries uh, the port of Cadiz was closed um, on Shabbos all the way through to the 20th century. Uh, there, were, there were Jews, at, at, there, were Jews um, there, but there were Jews elsewhere. There were Jews um, all around the world, along the Mediterranean basin, um, throughout the Middle East. Um, this is around the period where smaller brysos, we talked about the conclusion of the Mishnah and the Tosefta and other brysos. There are mesectas of Bryces. It's around this period when they are finally concluded. So we have, um, if you know, Derech Eretz Rabbah, Derech Eretz Zuta, the big and the small uh, compendium of, of Bryces. There's Mesechas Sofrim, um, which is, deals with Safrus. Mesechas Smachos. Anybody studied Smachos before? What is it? What's the subject? No, no, it's like Simcha. And it's a euphemism. It deals with mourning, laws of mourning. Uh, that's Smachos. And all these are sealed. Uh, I'll conclude today with painting a scene. We're back to Rabbi Yochan and Reish Lakish. Um, the great scene that I tried to convey to you. And who was, who was uh, most of you were there, I think, right? When we went to Tiveria, one of the first trips this year. It was before your time. You hadn't come to Shiva yet. But, um, but, but when we went to Tiveria, and I was very excited and trying to give this over to you. One of the greatest bastions of Torah in all of history was what's called the Mesifsa Alayam. Rabbi Yochanan's Masifsa, the great center of learning on the sea in Tiveria. And indeed, the Sanhedrin will settle there. It'll be the last site of, of the Sanhedrin throughout all of history till the modern day. Um, in fact, it's entirely possible that the Sanhedrin itself was located in the exact site, there's a theory at least, where Herod Antipas, if you remember several weeks ago, we talked about the son of Herod, his name is Herod Antipas, who built either his theater or his palace and they took the lowly pagan structure and they elevated it, making a great Jewish center of learning. And in fact, that's anticipated in the Gemara Megillah. The Gemara says, It'll be like a strong man of Yehuda, which refers to the Roman theaters and palaces that will ultimately be uh, used. They'll be emptied out of their pagan ritual and eventually Jews will teach Torah to their children and they'll teach it in, to the masses of the Jews. Um, so that's the Mesissa Aliyam in Tiveria. And indeed, when Rav and Shmuel both die in Bavel, Rabbi Yochanan Neretz Yisrael becomes the undisputed Gal Hador. 
And uh, his influence is immense. And even though there's a Nasi, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi, excuse me, Rabbi Gamliel, who's the uh, son of Rabbi Huda Nasiyah, but his prestige is very limited. Rabbi Yochanan is the one. So much so that there were other yeshivas around Eretz Israel, but they all declined because all the good students run to Tiberia to hear from Rabbi Yochanan. That, that was the nature of the, of the times. Um, Rabbi Yochanan was, was, was all central. In his 55 years as the Reish Masifsa, his shir, they finish learning, and you have to remember this, this is not, this is only with Mishnah and Brises. They don't have Gemaras yet. But they finish learning the entire expanse of the Talmud twice. It was based on the Gemara and Baba Basra. They learn the entire Talmud twice, um, which is not so many times. I would have thought they would have gone through it many more times. So what does it mean? It means that when they finished, they did a Siyum Ashas, they literally knew every angle of Shas. They learned it slowly, methodically, and carefully to the point that there was no, no stone unturned. And they did this, they, they repeated this process twice. Say it again. What's that? Because when you're done, you're never finished. We always go back. Fine, fine. But it was, it was, it was such a rigorous learning. There's Bikyus, there's Bi'yun, and then there's Bi'yun. It was their, their level of Bi'yun was meticulous. But you never finish. Um, we'll find a similar system under Ravashi at the end of the Bavli. They completed the at the Yarche Kala every 30 years. They completed the, every cycle of the uh, Gemara. Uh, Dafyomi these days is about seven and a half years, but it's not quite as rigorous and thorough. Um, okay. We're going to hear some of the best stories about Rabbi Yochanan Lakish tomorrow.